0: How many of you read the, story, the book of Esther this week? Raise your hand. It's so easy reading, isn't it? And uh, fascinating reading. I just want to spend a, a few minutes tonight uh, sharing together about the story of, of Esther. God really wanted his people to remember the story. And he set feast up. It's almost like someone uh, humorously said, whenever the Jewish people are threatened and they're, they're threatened with annihilation, there's going to be another feast. And this is the case uh, with the Feast of Purim and, and with the book of Esther. And the book of Esther is written. It's post-exilic. In other words, it's a story that it happened after most, many of the people returned out of captivity, which was initially Babylonian captivity, which became obviously Persian captivity, and they return, there's some questions about what were people doing there in Persia? Were they disobedient? Were they, There's some indications in the text that they weren't really practicing faithfulness because you, you read the text and you see there's special dates that are given there. For instance, the date of Passover is given specifically, but there's no mention that they're observing Passover. So the suggestion is that they re- that Because they were in Persia, it's evidence that they weren't fully obedient to the Lord. And it's evidence that they weren't observant Jews. And yet God even still does this wonderful work of deliverance uh, in their, it, with the people that were there. If you read the book carefully, the book of Esther, you see something interesting. There are a, a, there are a series of pairs in the book. And as I studied this, I, I wondered why there are so many pairs. Everything's in twos. Feast in twos and, and all kinds of things. If you read it, you can, if you mark them down, you'd see a number of pairs. And, and I, I, I'm not sure, but I think the reason is it's a, it's a memory device. God wants His people to remember the theme of this book. He wants children to remember the theme of this book. He wants the story told over and over again. And during this Jewish feast, the story is just read right out of the Bible two times during the feast. Pairs, twice. I think it's just a matter of something that God wants his people uh, to remember. Um, the, 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 the feast day comes from the idea, the name for the day Purim uh, comes from the, uh, the first part of the word, which is the word for Lot. Uh, the way that Haman, and you don't have to hiss when I say it now that we're done with our children's story, the the way that he decided he was casting a lot. So it was an entirely a coincidence, wasn't it? The day that was chosen for the annihilation of God's people. No, the whole story is based on the idea that even though in this book God's name isn't mentioned, he's in absolute sovereign, providential control the entire Times. It's a wonderful book uh, to read. You just can see that. I don't know about you, but I love a good rescue the beauty story. Don't you? Have you ever read a book like that and watched a movie like that? You don't want to admit it, do you? You know what they do for men? Sometimes they write books like this and they, they disguise them as westerns. <laughs> That's true. How many, you have read, how many of you are just going to be honest with me and, and admit to having read a Zane Gray western? There's a beauty in every one of those. I know because I've read them myself. And I, I was in junior high school, and I think I read 25 of them. And there's a theme, and the theme is this. This might take you a lot of time reading them. There's a theme. There's always a daring, dashing, courageous, you know, filled with character man. And there's always a woman in trouble, and the man is almost always delivering the beautiful woman who's in trouble. And it's all set in a Western so men can read it without embarrassment. But what it is, is it's a rescue the beauty story because there's something in us that wants to see a story about a beauty being rescued. Last Sunday night, we're talking about Nehemiah, and we're waxing eloquent about male leadership, and we believe the Bible teaches that that is true. God expects men to step up and take national leadership. He expects men to step up and take loving, sacrificial leadership in the home and in the church. But he wouldn't ever want us to get the impression that a woman can't ever be powerfully influential. And so what you have in Esther is a twist on the rescue the beauty story. In Esther, you have a story where the beauty rescues the entire nation. And God uses this beautiful young woman who perhaps at the beginning of the story wasn't entirely faithful to the Lord. You almost see her growing during the story into a person, a beauty that God uses to rescue his people. And so you, you, uh, you have a beautiful story here. I, I'm not going to go into detail because even though it was a bit spotty, I already told you the story tonight. There are so many details that I left out of the story. You want to read your Bible. And one of the purposes of this series of messages is just to get you to read your own Bible and to, to make notes in, 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 in the scriptures. And so uh, tonight, see, do we have a... Uh, we don't have a PowerPoint here. We don't have the slides going. I have just a, a little th- a thing. Oh, it's behind me, of course. Uh-huh. All right. The, the beauty rescues the nation. This two lessons, and let me just show you. This is very simple. Two lessons tonight. When you read the story of Esther and you see what God has done, you come to a conclusion that you cannot miss, and that is that God ultimately punishes his enemies. God ultimately punishes his enemies. Again, I mentioned it this morning, and there's uh, a lot of controversy. There should not really be controversy, but there's a lot of controversy among people who want to be known as Christian leaders, even in our own state and around our nation, all across the nation, about whether people really even want to believe what the Bible clearly says, that God punishes his enemies. Well, this book is very, very clear. As a matter of fact, it's really quite graphic. If you read the book carefully, we kind of told the happy children's version of it. But if you read the book carefully, there are difficult parts in the book. And the only conclusion that you can really come to is God ultimately punishes his enemies. And as I said there, you can see there, so you don't want to be on that side. If you are an enemy of Christ, repent and turn to him while you still can. You don't want to, in the end, end up being an enemy. This is the second lesson, and there are only two here that I want to emphasize and that's this. God ultimately protects and delivers his people. And this is what he's saying here is what the, what the story is really about. God ultimately protects and delivers his people. But there's a twist in this thing. And You, you see this real clearly in the book of Esther. What do you see? You see that people are threatened. It's, it's a you story. You know? In the chapters 1 through 5, it's just almost all bad. Until the king can't go to sleep at night, it doesn't take a positive turn. It's almost all bad. It's almost all threatening. It's almost all dangerous. Like, this is not going into a, in a good way. This isn't going to end well. And then after chapter 5, from 5 to 10, it takes a turn and everything is coming unraveled for Haman at this point. And so you have a, you have a story here that, uh, that, that is, um, a deliverance story. And throughout the story, there are amazing coincidences, right? There's just amazing timing. And we went through the story, and I made a little list, and I won't trouble you with it, but I made a little list as I was reading the story of like over 25, you could probably come up with 30 or 40 different things that a person looking in from the outside without a real strong understanding of the hand of God in history would say, oh, now that's an interesting coincidence, That this would happen in this timing, and this would happen in this timing, and this would happen in this timing. But here is the biggest literary feature of the book that stands out when you study the book of Esther. What is it? It's really the absence of something that's always in books of the Bible. And what is it? It's the absence of the name of God. God is not named in the book. At least on the surface, he's not named in the book. There are those. There are scholars. It's pretty fascinating to study this. There are scholars who will point out that the name of God is embedded in an acrostic, in in the Hebrew acrostic in the book for people to see. But he's not overtly named in the book. And so there have been people who came to the wrong conclusion and thought, well, maybe this book shouldn't be in the canon of Scripture because God's name isn't in it. But that would be an incorrect conclusion because it overlooks this. It overlooks the the subtle literary device that God and that the writer of Esther is using, he's leaving the name out. It's like, like, some of you guys, how many of you are going to go to a public school tomorrow? Raise your hand. Going to a public school. Raise your hand up real high. Okay. Put your hands back down. Great. Bunch of you. How many of you are going to go to, like, a, a shop or a factory or, or a school or a place of business that's predominantly filled with unbelievers? Raise your hand. A lot of you. Uh, you know, that's true. And so, um, how many of you, then, if you were overt about, like, on company time, let's say you decided to give a little speech about why you believe homosexuals need to be saved and delivered from that lifestyle and be saved and, and live a pure and uh, holy life so that they go to heaven, how many of you think you might get in trouble or maybe even fired for that kind of talk? Yeah, try it. I have more hands than that. Next week, I have more unemployed people. Next week, yeah, because that's like, in other words, there are places in our culture where it's either illegal or it's certainly unpopular to even speak the name of God. So we know in places like that, God's not at work, right? He's not going to work in places like that, am I right? What do you think? God is in absolute control everywhere. He's the king. He's the absolute sovereign. He's in control everywhere. He's in control in Jerusalem. He's in control in Iran. Iran. He's in control in Iraq, by the way, study that they're trying to suppress it. But in Iran and in Iraq, there are revivals today. The numbers of Christians are declining. They'll point that out because they're so oppressed. They're actually being driven out of the country. But people are being saved in these countries today. And amazing numbers. God is at work in the places where God is not allowed to be at work. Where He says, you can't talk about that here. You, you can't have a prayer meeting here. You can't stand up in class and talk about God here without getting in trouble. That doesn't mean that God isn't in total control. And I just think that's simply the message of this book. The beautiful, beautiful message of this book. Why is it that the book does not contain the name of God? It's intentional for people that are in circumstances like ours that we live in today When God in our culture has been marginalized and it's unpopular to talk about him, it does not mean that he's not still in sovereign control. God ultimately protects and delivers his people. This is what Jesus said in Luke 12, verses 4 and 5. I say to you, my friends, don't be afraid of those who kill the body, and after they have no more that they can do. But I will show you to whom you should fear. Fear him who after he has killed has power to catch you in hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. Uh, you, you know what it says in Isaiah 54, verse 7, no weapon that's formed against you will prosper. And every tongue that rises against you in judgment, you will condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. And their righteousness is from me, says the Lord. I don't know if you know this or not, but there's persecution against Christians all over the world right now. There are, If you have an RSS feeder, a reader, if you have an RSS feed from... Like, there are a number of different websites that talk about persecution around the world. And if you subscribe to their feed, and and if you do a reader on your computer, you will have constant, constant news stories that are completely overlooked by the mainstream press where Christian people all over the world are being persecuted unto death, even as we speak, right now, all over the world. give you just a couple of quick examples of it. And these aren't aren't, uh, unusual examples. They say that 75% of religious persecution in the world is persecution against Christians. In Ethiopia, since the 1st of March in Ethiopia, you know where Ethiopia is. You have Africa, and Ethiopia is a part of Africa toward the Middle East, right? In Ethiopia there, you have, since the 1st of March, since the 5th of March, Muslims have burned 69 churches, 69 churches, and they have displaced 10,000 Christian people. There was a pastor last week, just dragged out of the street and shot. It doesn't even make the news in, in, in the mainstream media in America. One man was told that he would be released if he converted to Islam, and he was sentenced and he refused to do that. And so he was sentenced to two years in prison, hard labor for writing on a piece of cloth. Jesus is Lord. So you think about in the world today and you can feel the tension, you can feel the pressure. It's not overt persecution in America, is it? But you can feel the tension. You can feel the pressure. You can you can sense when a person is a real, genuine, Bible believing. I believe in hell. I believe in heaven. I believe Jesus is the only way to God. Christian. That is a very unpopular thing, and and it's going to become more and more and more unpopular. And there are times for us that we feel like when you go off to school, like I did, go into a public school, and uh, go into a factory where there were just these lewd, godless people who hated the things of the Lord and had filed filthy language and told dirty jokes every other story that they told. There are times like that when you sort of forget the songs you sang yesterday and you sort of forget the messages that you heard and the Bible verses that you read in church. You kind of forget them. And it's a time like that when, when, when the, the oppression of, of Haman kind of hangs over your head. It's a time like that that you want to read a book like this. Who knows what God is going to do? Who knows what God has in mind? Even, even if you aren't the most faithful Christian that you should have been, even if maybe you found yourself in a place where you shouldn't really even be, who knows but that God has put you in that place for such a time as this. As Mordecai said to Escher, maybe God put you in this place for such a time as this. And after he talked with her, she says, I'll go into the king. And what does she say? And if I die, I die. And in a time when people are ignoring God or when they're opposing God, and when they're oppressed, in times of oppression, we have Christian people in public schools. We have Christian people in the worst factories, in the worst shops, in the worst places. There are God's people everywhere. Who knows, but that God hasn't put them into that place for such a time as this. To do a great deliverance. Or even maybe on a scale that's not as big as the scale that Esther was operating on where an entire group of people were, were delivered. But what if it's just one? Holly is out of town today visiting a friend. And it um, happens to be that he is from uh, central Ohio. And uh, I, got a, I gave a, Holly a call today. And I said, how to, how to go in church today? And she said to me, it was really a wonderful service. And saw a lot of old friends, you know, people that I had had a chance to minister to many years ago in Ohio where we started the church. She said, Stephen Kathy Griffith came up to me. And Steve got all excited. He said, please tell your dad thank you. Because he's the guy who led me to the Lord. Well, it sounds all wonderful, but I remember the Sunday that God began to do that. I preached uh, like I would any Sunday in our church, and I was trying to think of a creative way to give an invitation that people, you know, sometimes people go, yeah, here's the last song, invitation, click, let's turn the pastor off, put our shoes on, and try to think about which restaurant we're going to eat at this afternoon, you know. So I decided that I would try to use some creative approach. And I said, um, some of you really ought to sit down and have a conversation about uh, about the Lord. Some of, you ought to, uh, some of you ought to ask me how to be saved. And so um, I was thinking, I said, tell you what, um, I'm going to give you a little code word. You asked me for my business card at the, at the, at the door on the way out. And uh, if you want to talk about the Lord, ask me for my business card. And then after I said that, I thought, that was a stupid idea. You know, I can't believe I said that. I should have just sung a hymn and had him come forward like Billy Graham. You know, that was just dumb. And then I walked out to the back and I stand there kind of at the back door thinking this, that was a lame idea. And this guy, Steve, walks out and i never forget, he looks at me and he goes, could I have a business card? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, you get? i like, yeah, it works, you know. And so I go out here and then I go over to his house. And, uh, you know, it wasn't hard. It wasn't anything special. I did. Anybody that was a Bible-believing pastor would do what I did. And he had a list. He reminded Holly about this today. He had this list. And it was a list of, he had just made a list of all the things he was ashamed of and all the sin that was in his life and the things he'd done that were wrong. And he says, I just need to show you this because you need to know who I am and the kinds of things I've been involved in. And so I go, okay, let me take a look at it. So I take a look at his list. And I said to him, there's something missing here. And he said, he told Holly this today. He goes, what? I go, you don't have any reference on here to the grace of God. Nothing about the grace of God on this list. Because the grace of God will wipe out this entire list. <laughs> and he, he, that was years ago. That was so many years ago. I was a young man when that happened. And Holly just told me today, that Steve and Kathy Griffith are still walking with the Lord. So I'm not Esther, and I'm not Nehemiah, but God used me to lead Steve and Kathy Griffith to the Lord. And in your school where you go, there's somebody who needs the Lord. There's somebody who will listen. There are a lot of people who won't listen, but there's probably one or two that will listen. Maybe when you go to the cafeteria and you just look around, there's just somebody eating alone, and you can just walk over there and sit next to them and just say, how you doing? And start asking them some questions. And if you're homeschooled, there's all kinds of creative ways you can be used of the Lord, too. And we'll help you with that. And maybe, uh, maybe there's somebody that you're working with, and you came to the kingdom just for this time. Uh, we've asked Brother Tom to come and close our service by taking this same message and delivering it to us in song. Would you come?